Hello and welcome to OperaCast, your one-stop shop for the latest opera news, reviews, interviews and general chit-chat. My name is David Ward and this month we'll be sailing the high seas at the Metropolitan Opera. We'll be telling you where to get your classical fix this month and how much would you pay to go-go and see Natrebko and Kaufman at the Royal Opera House. We also have an exclusive interview with the Artistic Director of Longborough Opera, Polly Graham. Now, joining me this month, back by popular demand, is the conductor Ben Crick. How are you, Ben? I'm not too bad, Dal. Who's popular demand? Yours. Oh, were, there other, were there other people involved in this There's demand? a small and silent, passionate Excellent. crowd That's who've been beautiful. baying for your return. Good, good, good. Lovely to hear. And joining us for the first time, but soon, I'm sure, to be back by popular demand, it's John Savornin. How are you, John? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank good. you for joining us. Not a problem. Now, a lot to get through. We're going to start off um, with a quick news roundup before we get into some of the meatier segments of today's pod. So, starting off with the announcement this month of the finalists of this year's Cardiff Singer of the World competition. The world-renowned competition, which takes place every two years in the Welsh city of Cardiff, um, have announced the finalists. Uh, representing Wales is Angred Lydon, or Lydon, apologies for the pronunciation there. Representing England is Katie Bray, who can currently be seen on tour in Opera North Catcher Cabanova. Um, I caught the production a couple of weeks ago, and as well as the uh, amazing and inspiring conducting of, of last month's pod guest, uh, Sean Edwards, uh, the uh, the other performance that really caught my eye was, was Katie's so I'm really interested to see what she brings to the Cardiff competition this year. Um, we have our kind of regular Mongolian entrance, I'm very uh, very pleased to say, and for the first time a Guatemalan singer is taking part. Um, there's been a little bit of sort of uh, chit-chat online about the lack of uh, European representation, quite interesting, no German singers, no Italians, uh, no French, um, but we've got uh, Portugal, Russia, England and Wales represented from Europe. John, do these competitions kind of still serve a purpose for you? Are you going to be tuning in, eyes and ears glued? Uh, I always find them really interesting. I really like uh, getting to groups of you know who's out there at, at the moment. But I mean, I particularly wanted to tune in this time because Katie Bray is a very good friend of mine, and uh, I think that this is a heartily well deserved. Caveating the response that's coming <laughs> no, from no, John. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I uh, know I think it's heartily well deserved. I mean, she's singing amazingly. She's just sung in uh, in Katia Opera North, and it was uh, just. The most sublime singing, I think. That, yeah, really you know, great yeah. performance. Yeah. She's on really, really top form, so I'm really not surprised. And in and in many ways, you know, I mean, it's in in the right way. She's been a little bit of an underdog in in recent um, in recent years. In a way, she's always sort of been there, but often she's you know she's playing something like the sister in this, or she's mm. although she did a lovely job in Hansel and Gretel uh, a couple of years ago uh, here. But she, um, uh, it's great to see that she might actually you know finally get into the limelight, and hopefully that will see her. Uh, actually you know reaping the fruits of it and i think that that's the main thing about this competition is that for a lot of people who take part and not necessarily the person that wins mm -hmm. um it, it, it's a really great shop window for companies and for people to to swipe people up and if you look at people like louise older you know it, it's uh, it's clearly had an impact on her career since uh, since last year and uh, uh, hopefully we'll keep our fingers crossed that Katie can do that for for britain this year yeah i mean one of the things that's said about kind of competition nowadays is that now that so much is on youtube so much is streamed that you know kind of in a way there's there's there are so many shop windows for singers but really what something like this does um from my perspective is kind of channel that noise or kind of shut so much of it out so you can concentrate on some of those kind of really world-class talents it's all it's it's old school media isn't it where a lot of the filtering's been done for you there's a, there's a safety net that everyone who's got to that point is going to be very an exceptional musician and singer in their own right um, it's perhaps where i struggle most with with the things that, that what constitutes good singing it's such this varied and, and wide thing, incredibly subjective. And to pick one person out as you're the winner seems to, to be on the brink of arbitrary at times. 
Well, I mean, everything that we do in this regard is subjective. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. no objective winner. I think what was really interesting from the 2017 competition, particularly you mentioned Louise Alder and the, the winner, Katrina Morrison, was that Louise Alder was very much the, when she was the audience favourite, she won the audience prize. She was very, uh, what should we say, performative, you know, yeah. an amazing kind of stage presence. Katrina, much more kind of understated, but, you know, kind of told it through the voice. So both great performers in their own right. And actually these competitions are a great way of, of kind of seeing the different ways of kind of, you know, being a stage presence, being a great singer. Um, so we will see what comes from this year's competition taking place in June. I think some tickets are still available, um, so uh, we'll put the, the link in the show notes. Um, so do join them, otherwise I assume it's going to be on Radio 3 and Radio 4 as usual. Now, Streetwise Opera, the award-winning opera company whose work takes place across the UK, have announced their new artistic director, uh, which is the composer Hannah Conway. Uh, in next month's pod, alongside the usual review of the latest opera news, we'll be having a special feature on opera in education and outreach, uh, so make sure to join us for that. Now, last month, we discussed the International Opera Awards shortlist. This month, we have the Olivier Awards. They have two categories for opera. Uh, best New Production, fairly standard sort of category. Catching Cabana Lessons in Love and Violence from the Royal Opera House and Turn of the Screw from ENO nominated. And then the intriguing Best Achievement in Opera category, which is a very broad-ranging category, taking in all sorts of uh, bits and bobs. Um, nominated Andrus Nelson's Conducting Lohengrin at the Royal Opera House. David Buttphillip and Roderick Williams for their performances in the War Requiem, the Eno Chorus in Paul Bunyan, and the Ensemble of Porgy and Bess also at Eno. Um, I, I quite like this category. It's sort of, you know, what what is kind of taking your fancy? Could be could be anything on stage, off stage, you know. Off stage, anything. It should be like Dave from Keithley managed to get a ticket to the Royal Opera. <laughs> <laughs> would be the greatest achievement in opera. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where are the things that really mattered in these awards? Yeah. So 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 quite fun and a, and, a, and well, I was going to say broad representation of the Royal Opera House and you know cleaning Dave up. From, Dave from Keithley. There, isn't no, it? no. There's no Keithley representation, <laughs> no, really unfortunately. No. Um, I mean, it should be said, you know, the Olivia Awards, obviously, Olivia Awards, you know theatre heavy um, but I think it's quite nice to kind of have opera and dancer represented it's nice to have an award ceremony where you know kind of the art forms are all sort of brought together rather than just being kind of disparate entities yeah and you know could also use a little bit of a lift at the moment obviously they've had all sorts of controversial um, uh, bad press about about the, their handling of things over the last few years so it's it's nice for them to actually you know be able to uh, uh, fruits of some labours uh, being being rewarded at the moment with all of those things and quite varied things at that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talked a lot about ENO last month, so I'm going to try and uh, limit our discussion of them of this month. But certainly, there've been some good press stories coming out. The Olivier Awards um, queues round the block um, for Aknarton at the moment with with Philip Glass. Um, some early promising signs with their new free tickets for for under 16 scheme. Um, so things really really picking up there under their new CEO Stuart Murphy. Yeah, my experience of ENO is that the stand of work they've produced has been consistent high despite some people in management's best efforts they've consistently produced very very good opera and it's a, it's a credit to the musical staff there that that is consistently i saw the Acknorton production and it's fantastic it's it, it really music of the highest standard yeah and not just the music i mean i think that the new the new regime there you know daniel kramer and so on that that's actually having a big impact on them you know finding their feet again and and, and moving forward in the right way and it's it's um you know it, I actually haven't seen anything there for a while, but I'm going to be in London the next couple of months, and I'm going to, you know, line up a few shows and go yeah. and go and I'm sure be treated to some awesome work. Mm, absolutely. So, congratulations to to them. The Olivia Awards take place at the beginning of April. 
Uh, now, uh, requested feature, a little kind of brief synopsis of some of the opera that you can enjoy on radio, TV, and the big screen over the coming month. Um, in cinemas, two knockout productions, Die Valkyra from the Metropolitan Opera, Christine Girk, Eve Marie Westbrook, Jamie Barton, Stuart Skelton, a proper all-star cast. Um, another all-star cast for the Royal Opera House's Force of Destiny from the 2nd of April with the Tremco and Kaufman. We're going to be talking a little bit more about that one later on today. Um, radio 3 have their usual fill of all sorts of uh, exciting bits and bobs. Um, particular highlight for me, and again kind of a, a new one, um, Cephale and Procris by Elizabeth Jack de la Guerre. One of your favourite uh, composers, Ben? Yeah, up there with Mozart. Oh, absolutely. One of the first recognised um, operas by a female composer from 1694. Um, so a real um, obscurity there on Radio 3, um, as well as uh, a few other little highlights just to kind of pick out. Um, Wexford's Dinner at 8 um, is currently available to listen to, and uh, Samson Delilah, the 23rd of March, conducted by Mark Elder. Uh, on television, uh, no full-scale opera performances, you will probably not be surprised to hear, um, but you can catch up on a couple of things on iPlayer, Antonio Papano's Greatest Arias, um, and also a really interesting documentary, War Requiem, staging of a masterpiece all about Ian staging of Britain's War Requiem. Um, and uh, the OperaVision website, which I know we've mentioned before, some really fascinating things coming up online, um, all available to watch for free, um, including world premieres from Finnish National Opera, Lamanet in Belgium, and Lille Opera. So that's operavision.eu. Um, we've said it before, I'll say it again. Head over there. There's all sorts of wonderful things uh, to, to feast your eyes and ears on. Um, and finally, um, you know, because we're, we're a very friendly podcast and we like to promote our fellow um, uh, podcasts out there, I will mention the Classical Fix podcast from the BBC. Um, now, every month, Clemency Burton Hill, or in sort of BBC podcast language, Clemmy Burton Hill, um, introduces uh, people to the world of classical music. But they've got a four-part um, kind of series as part of that at the moment with Danielle Denise, which in podcast language is Danny, Danny Denise. Uh, it's um, got a real ring to it, hasn't it? It has. Got, got something to it there. Um, introducing... Clemmy's mate Danny yeah, yeah. down the pub with, uh, yeah, with Danny yeah. and Clemmy. Um, <laughs> introducing people to opera, starting with journalist Benjamin Zand. Uh, the first episode you can listen to now talks for half an hour about Barbara Seville, if that's your cup of tea. Um, I mean, we've spoken before, Ben, about, um, I suppose, kind of getting your first fix of, of opera on radio and kind of uh, television. Um, John, what, what kind of for you as a kind of a, an artist do you kind of see, especially with those kind of streamed performances? Is it something you're sort of more conscious of nowadays that people are going to be consuming the work you're doing online through through film uh, i mean i think it's i think it's kind of vital i mean every every other medium every other art form has 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 uh, uh, has more or less um you know succumbed to to putting their, their work online or it only exists online or it only exists on television so can uh, just take a succumbed is a very interesting word is that a, a, a conscious choice sorry i mean i probably isn't the right word to use succumbed. <laughs> i think i think it's become you know uh, an inevitability perhaps um in a positive way but uh, it, and and i think that if it's going to survive and if people are going to be get get to you know more people are going to get to see it then it's really uh, important that it's it's available and you know of course there's the question around you know accessibility for people who perhaps you know either can't afford to or can't physically take themselves down to uh, a theater wherever that may be to see some some opera they can get some of the best opera in the world um you know maybe 5 minutes down the road and and uh, you know 750 or uh, mm. in, in price instead of into whatever it may be so i think you know, from that point of view it's very important obviously it's a kind of a double edged sword because because you've got 
people going to the cinema instead of buying tickets to go and see the work in in a in a theatre um, or in an opera house. But um, but I I think that that's you know uh, that's that's a choice that people should be allowed to make. And I think that there's something particularly enjoyable in my experience of going to see opera at, at the cinema. Um, sometimes a because you get to see it all so much more up close, which mm. is, is you really see the spit coming out of the mouths at the cinema, yeah, which is see, I always uh, notice. Uh, and, the, and the eyebrow that raises is actually <laughs> something that you know you can actually appreciate and uh, and so on. And you might get to see uh, some shots of the orchestra that you might not get to see in the opera house, whatever it might be. You know, there, there are clearly advantages to it. Um, and I think that you know the disadvantage of not going to actually see a live performance. Well, it's the uh, customer's choice, and if that's mm. where, where where they feel most comfortable, then that should be up to them. Mm. Does it put additional pressure on on regional opera houses, regional productions that people can go see? Kaufman can go see Nabtrinko, the absolute international level music at a cinema. Will that raise the game of other opera companies around here that they then have to compete and consistently aspire to that level of artistic performance? Because that's what people are seeing. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose opera companies are always trying to aspire to that level of performance, even if they, you know, don't have Kaufman. Yeah, it's, not you know. level, it's not a level uh, playing field, is it? Covent Garden got a lot more money than everyone else. Yeah, of course, yeah. of course, and and that's exactly right. But I think, it, but I think it's also good for, you know, the the opera lover to be able to raise their um, their sort of it, develop their own taste in the art yeah. form, you know, and and that that's something that they're allowed to do and it might then make them think about oh I really enjoyed seeing that production of Traviata oh it turns out Opera North are doing it and such and such I'll pop down and see that and uh, and see see what I think about it and if it's if yeah. it's opening up a kind of you know internal um, dialogue with the inevitable comparisons and, and opinions and so forth then hey it means opera's alive yeah people mm. are talking about it are they which, yeah. Is, which is yeah yeah. Good. And I certainly think with the with the, the cinema screens, but particularly the, the opera vision stuff, you know, you are seeing, you know, uh, productions from around the world, you know, you're seeing what yeah. is what is going on in different countries, not only the world premieres, but you know, how works are done in, you know, Eastern Europe or in um I was gonna say South America. I don't think there are any South American productions at the moment, but you know, you, you can yeah. get a real kind of sense of the opera world that it's kind of bigger than just this this sceptered aisle. Yeah, with your directors, Howard John, do you see a situation where where directors are going to become aware of their staging? with an eye to the cinema audience that it's going to be filmed. I know we later we're going to talk about styles of acting. There's a difference. Well, mm. yes and no. I mean, I, th I I think, though, that sometimes there is they tend to employ a director for the filming specifically. So I've seen, yeah, I've seen um, that. So, for example, the, the Olbra um, Grimes on the Beach, yeah. um, you know, the director for that, uh, uh, you know, while he directed the stage show, they then had a director for film who didn't obviously try to change the, the way that it had been directed at all, but had was brought in to try to help make it translate well to the camera. Mm. Right. But, um, but that, that's very different, though, because there's there's one thing which is just filming a stage production, and then something like the old programs at the beach, you're getting to a point where you're, you're creating something which is more filmic and cinematic. Yes, um, very true. You know, you're slightly sort of changing kind of the, the look of it so it works for that medium, whereas most of most of what we kind of consume online and in the cinema is is a camera pointed at a stage sort of. Right, you know. and of course that has you know a different effect, doesn't it? Because then it's just uh, actually just filming a, a stage production and you know that that's what you're getting and mm. that you, therefore, you know, your mind is tuned into it being that rather than it being something that's been clearly filmed for for for, for, for TV or, um, or for film specifically. Although, of course, there's that E&O production of Lavo M, John, the Jonathan Miller, that was originally, you know, he, very much with that in yeah. mind. Mm. He directed it to feel like it could be something that could be seen on a screen rather than 
than in the opera house. But actually, in reality, it translates quite very well in um, in both cases. So I think you know there's a way of there's a way of looking after both sides of the coin. Um, I think it's just about um, the acting being uh, honest and nuanced enough, and yeah. and you're away. Mm. Wonderful. So any of those take your fancy. We'll put some uh, some links in the show notes. Um, so do kind of have a look at what's coming up on uh, screen and radio over the next month. Uh, now, last month we talked about uh, Welsh National Opera's new season. We're going to just take a little moment here to kind of look at Opera North's new season, um, which is full of variety, a really interesting programme. Um, so opening the, the 1920 season will be a new production of The Greek, uh, the Greek Passion by Martineau. Um, and again, caveat, John is going to be uh, performing in that, in that production. Um, a revival of Julius Caesar um, and Lab OM. The uh, 2020 opens with a new production of Street Scene and um, with Giselle Allen, Robert Haywood, um, conducted by James Holmes. Um, there's a revival of The Marriage of Figaro and Turn of the Screw. Um, they're going to be launching a new community opera in County Durham, uh, which is being composed by Will Todd. Um, and also to look out for two concert performances in November of Bluebeard. Uh, Sean Edwards uh, returns to conduct uh, with a, a kind of top-level cast, Christopher Furbis and Alice Coote, um, in the, the lead roles there. So really interesting season. Um, Greek passion street scene not seen very much with some kind of firm favourites, but some great Revival Opera North productions. Um, John, starting off, can you tell us a little bit about what the Greek passion is is, is all about? Yes, I mean it, it's it's uh, it's a really unusual um, uh, piece, but it's about a uh, um, a group of people that are putting on um, the Easter play essentially, um, and and during the course of the opera they kind of take on their uh, the characters that they're cast as, and within it, a, a group of uh, refugees from uh, another um, another place, another city, come and uh, and ask them for help um, to and ask them to allow them to settle on land uh, in their in their uh, in their area, which the 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 town resists, but they get some help from within the town, and that's that's where the the basis for the story comes from. It's very dramatic. The music is very hot on your sleeve. Um, and uh, it's actually very moving. I think it should mm. be very exciting, and uh, hasn't been performed in this country for quite some time now. Mm. And a real kind of, um, I know kind of Martineau isn't particularly an Opera North house favourite, but you know that Opera North are a big sort of Yamachek company. Um, we've got the, the, the Kurt Vile kind of opening, kind of a key sort of 20th century work that kind of seems at the heart of Opera North's, you know, kind of repertoire. Um, anything in that season, Ben, that, that jumps out for you? I, I love the Bartok. I, th- I think Bartok is fantastic, and some of my favourite stuff I've seen Opera North do have been the town hall gigs, the ring cycle they did, mm. the, um, the Hollander, the Dutchman they did, yep. that was fantastic. Really excited about that, great singers, great conductor, that that is fantastically exciting. Yeah, and some some really great performers kind of coming on. Obviously, um, you know, Mr. John Savornin being being one of them. Absolutely. Um, but yeah. we mentioned Christopher Purvis and, and Alice Coote, Giselle Allen. Um, Nikki Spence, Sophie Bevan, so you know some kind of real, real kind of top quality talent coming to to, to Leeds, but not Leeds, of course. You know Salford, Newcastle, yeah. um, uh, as well. Um, so a really exciting season coming up with Opera North, and uh, next month uh, we'll be covering some more of those new season announcements. Um, we're not going to talk about them today, but um, some kind of the big European houses um, and international houses have announced their new seasons, um, including the Met and the Paris Opera. Um, head over to our Twitter and Facebook, uh, where I'm sure at some point we've retweeted and reposted about those. Um, now, John, whilst you're here, um, I'd be really interested to just kind of get a brief insight into kind of the life of an actor. You know, you do a lot of work at Opera North, but you're at Holland Park this summer and you work for all sorts of different companies. So just kind of take us through that process. So something like The Greek Passion, it's it's premiering in September. Kind of how far out are you 
originally approached about the role and how does that kind of conversation happen? Uh, I think it varies a little bit from company to company. I mean, it's usually somewhere between one and two years beforehand, and 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 I think actually Greek passion, if my memory serves me correctly, said it was somewhere between somewhere in the middle of that. So I think it was about a year and a half ago, and um, uh, and then really, you know, from there, it's about making a decision about when it's time to start. Uh, learning it, mm-hmm. uh, it's actually very, uh, it's musically quite um, complex. So I've I started learning it, you know, at, um, at the beginning of this year now, okay. um, and uh, you know had sort of flirted with it a bit during during the the autumn, and I I have you know uh, pretty much a, a view on, on how it all goes <laughs> for, uh, at this point, but you know need to memorise it and work on it some more, um, and it's always a juggling act between you know how you what you decide is important what what needs to be learned today what needs to be what could wait till next month and you know like <laughs> like anything you've just got to uh you know make your list and try to stick to it and you know uh and and do the work that you need to do um so yeah I mean, it's uh we're very fortunate in this particular industry unlike in in straight theater where often uh you might receive a contract for something or an offer for something only a, a month or, or a few months at most before you actually start doing that project mm. uh, where Whereas in the opera world, it's become accustomed over, you know, many decades to be the case that you might be booked up for things far in advance. And of mm. course, the bigger the opera company, the further in advance that tends to get. Um, and, uh, you know, that that comes with um, uh, a sense of some sense of security, if you're lucky enough to be mm. able to op- be offered some things. Uh, it also comes with hard choices because you might have something on the table, but something else comes in that you really think would be good for your career and you have to make you know, work out whether that's a decision you need to make. And, of course, you know, you always want to honour the company and you don't want to uh, upset anybody and you don't want to, um, uh, you know, disrespect or bite the hand of feet to you and, <laughs> and, and so on. So, you know, it's always a juggling act, but it's uh, it's um, it's great. It is interesting kind of opera, its own kind of special case, because things are planned so far in advance, you know, getting the talent, getting the production up and ready. It does mean that, I don't know what you think, Ben, but opera can kind of... Doesn't quite have that flexibility necessarily to kind of, I suppose, to respond to events as they're happening. Your theatre feels often is kind of very political, is very kind of of the moment. Is yeah. op- is, does opera struggle to be of the moment as, as other art forms can be? I think you see a lot of things that are often six months perhaps after when when the thing was the hype, the, the issue was the hype. We've already had series on TV about the Brexit problem, haven't we? There's been TV shows, there's been programmes, there's no new opera addressing that immediately because of the, the time spans involved. And it's a shame in a way because it's a, it's an art form that can that throughout history, if you look at the marriage of Figaro, this was a band play that that Mozart says it's very very satirical. We've got Nabucco being sort of like Verdi's take on the oppression of Italy. And opera has been political, and I think I think that's getting less so in some ways as we as we as we become more and more up to the present time. And I think it is it's a turnaround of creating these works. That isn't. I mean, Mozart was turning around Figaro in three months. He was, he was writing it in three months. Was, from from him picking up a pen to it getting performed is an incredibly short amount of time. And that that's just not how he's done this these days. Sounds like a fun challenge, though. You know, it'd be great yeah. to get you know the Royal Opera to commission someone yeah, three three months to open something. There's all these stories, isn't there? That um, all the ink on the Marriage of Figaro overture was still wet when the players were playing it. Well, I bet that were rubbish then, because it's really really <laughs> hard. So the players like see these stuff. I do wonder. It, it's a I digress, but if the composers ever heard their music played as well as we'd hear it now. I, I doubt they did, I would very honest. much doubt it. Yeah, and what we expect and accept 
I don't think they ever experienced. It's such a different world now, yeah. and 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 the fact that you know we've become really recently, really, if you think about it, in the last hundred years or so, we've become so um, yeah, hell bent on on basically reviving material, yeah. and and we're very very fond of that material, and we want to you know find new ways of exploring it. And of course, there's new work being written all the time, but even then, that also is now you know written in advance, and there's a lot more planning that's gone into it, mm. and 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 so on. But you know, when when you think back to the idea that the composer has written the overture at four o'clock in the morning the yeah. night before a show and they and they just you know have a quick bash through it before the opening night uh, being something that really did happen at the end of the uh, you know it was a Victorian era yeah. and later it wasn't even that long ago that we were still in that space and there's something really exciting and kind of flexible about that yeah. that you can go no we're going to chuck that out we're going to cut that we're going to change this scene to something to be somewhere completely different yeah. we're going to put it in the kitchen not the bar or whatever you know and, yeah. and, <laughs> and, and that that's now very different you know opera companies i was chatting to somebody the other day actually who was saying that they're they're, they're, work, they're directing a show and their set is being built abroad um and it's currently being built but it's it, the show isn't until about another you know 12 months away and so they're going to be you yeah, know, well, where's the flexibility you're going well, to yeah. be pretty locked into that and there's benefits to that clearly because then the standard of the way stuff is made is better and you know there's all, all of that stuff is very well thought through but you know the the kind of flexibility that you expect from uh, working in theatre where you can kind of go you know what we just need this now or we just mm. need to change mm. that costume and just need to do that it's not so easy just because of the way that the industry's evolved I think that the people that you'd need to address here as well is the audience what the audience expects I mean uh, best part of 20 years ago now, as part of some academic study, I had to look at the playlist for the Berlin theatres in the 1820s. And what happened was there was a revival of Figaro and eight new works, and that was what it was. And the audience were happy with that, and the audience expected that. If Opera North did Figaro and eight new operas, you're telling me their audience would be delighted. Well, do you, know yeah, what? Yeah. do you know what, I though? I wonder. Do you know what, though? Having yeah. said that, I mean, I think that, you know, when they've when they've come back to things that 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 are reasonably modern pieces uh, but haven't been seen here for a while, for example, the Martin, I can yeah. fully expect that every single performance of that will be sold out because people want, to see, want to see what it's all about. Having said that, of course, there are only, you know, seven performances instead of what might be, you mm. know, 15 or something for, yeah. for Lavo M. And, you know, so I suppose there is the the proof that the interest is is more diminished. It is, but they've been literally queuing around the Coliseum to get into Act Well, yeah. there you go. L- literally queuing around yeah, the Coliseum. Yeah, and I read, a, to, yeah. read, read something about, you know, somebody had said, you know, isn't this amazing that there's a, a new piece that people are literally queuing around the corner to see and they're absolutely going crazy for, you know, wonderful when it works. For 448 Psychosis, I think, carries a same, yeah. similar kind yeah, of mantle. Right. People have been absolutely wild about that. And it is great. I went to see it. I don't know if you saw it either. No, it's, it's not wonderful. Seen, no. Really, really interesting way of dealing with it, and 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 so much kind of interconnection with with theatre as as a world. Um, there's some wonderful scenes in it with a uh, with percussionists um, that are are, are are just playing timps really, and the and and bits and pieces. But they're 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 punctuating uh, lines of text that are written on um, suicidal boards. To two people sitting opposite each other by a table, not speaking, right. but it's got this kind of wonderful kind of comic effect, yeah. um, which you know is absolutely inspired and was really exciting. You felt the room were just you know absolutely lapping it up. It was wonderful. It's great. Not to do audience a discredit. I was going to say, That's I wonder, I wonder pro- if we, yeah. we, we kind of second guess them a bit, a bit much, and actually, much. if we just sort of stick to our guns a bit more, audiences will come with us, and um, that kind of 
segues into the, the interview that I had with, with Polly Graham, where we kind of talk about her plans at, at Longborough Opera and how it's about the balance between kind of serving the audience and taking them with you on, on, yeah. the, on the journey. Um, and the seamless segue um, seamless. In, into the Polly Graham uh, interview is, is going to happen right now. Um, I spoke to Polly uh, last week. We had a really wide-ranging um, chat speaking about all sorts of different things, um, including the, the recent world premiere of Robin Hood, which she directed, um, the demands of being a, an artistic director, um, and the new season, which is coming up at Longborough. So, Polly Graham, thank you very much for joining us uh, today for OperaCast. Thanks for having me. Not at all. So you've been uh, in London for the past couple of weeks for the, the world premiere of Robin Hood with the opera story. Um, just tell us very briefly what, uh, what the opera's all about. Um, <clears throat> so it's a kind of contemporary um, twist on the story of Robin Hood, and it, it it kind of focuses on the character of Robin from a new perspective. And what we've tried to do with the production is really take this kind of maxim, rob from the rich, give to the poor, and put pressure on it and investigate what that really means. And I felt from an early stage that actually that had a inherently kind of paternalistic um, and hierarchical um, ideology behind it. So Robin is essentially like a kind of Tory, um, not caricature, but you know, he's he in the program. I wrote something like Robin's the current um, conservative gent that most of us like to hate, and um, you know, he he he. he had that kind of totemic uh, figure and we were thinking about people like Boris Johnson and other members of the Tory party when we were working in rehearsals. Um, basically kind of exploring the idea that his ideology keeps the poor poor and isn't really about social change in any serious way. Certainly in the way that, that, that Zoe and Rebecca had written the character, he's, he's dysfunctional, he's corrupt, he spends most of the time eating and drinking He's got an exclusive group of merry men who we kind of turned into, again, we based that kind of on Bullingdon Club rituals and exclusive members clubs. So it's really an, uh, an examination of contemporary, some contemporary political issues through the prism of the story of Robin Hood. Perhaps that's the best way of thinking about it. It's also got absolutely amazing music by Danny Howard who's a striking talent. Um, she works in a very uh, minimalistic and repetitive style, um, which has been very, it's actually very challenging to work on from a, from a rehearsal point of view, because, you know, each phrase is almost exactly the same as a previous one, but just slightly different. But it's difficult to initially like know why there's a change, like this kind of subtle shift in, in, in a singer's phrasing. And so, Everyone was getting a bit, you know, going around in loops, but they overcame that and they really excelled in, in, in filling and fitting into the musical style. So it was a lovely process, but a very challenging one. Mm. Was the composer actually in the rehearsal room with you at the time? Uh, she was, she came in and out and she was actually very generous and like, you know, um, very much like I've done my bit. It's over to you. But at the same time, she was also. She came, you know, there were bits where we were like, you can't hear this voice at this pitch. You know, how do we change that? How do we fit that back into the, to the score so that it works with the text you want in the band? And, um, cause it's quite a big band for, um, a relatively small company. Um, you know, they're only in their third year and, and there was a 10 piece 
orchestra, which I think are very ambitious and I applaud them for their ambition. But again, that was something that we, making the balance work was something that we needed to talk about with Danny kind of live. Um, so yeah, in and out. Mm. You mentioned kind of the challenges of working on something like this. I mean, you've worked on a number of kind of uh, world premieres and new works before. Is is it more liberating working on a new work or actually kind of more challenging than taking on the more of the standard rep? No, I think it is a challenge. I think there's a difference. Um, perhaps there's a different expectation around how a director might approach a new work as opposed to a standard piece of repertoire that's been done many times because when there's a standard piece of repertoire, I think implicit is the expectation or the presumption that you can really interpret and potentially with a with a new work people there's there's kind of a different process of interpretation because there's no kind of standard which you're going to riff against or invert or subvert and nevertheless i i feel like it's very important as a director to to keep alive the kind of um potential for discovery in the rehearsal room and the potential to see the words on the page and think but actually they could mean something completely different and so um yeah that's that's been an interesting challenge and do you kind of feel as though um a great pressure knowing that it is a you know a kind of a premiere and the composer's there the librettist is there do you do you think that kind of affects you knowing they're maybe not literally but sort of um looking at looking over your shoulder on the the work that they've they've put together um yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's that pressure. And then there's also the pressure of, of the company who are, who are young and fantastic. And, you know, you absolutely want it to be a success from their point of view as well. And from the point of view of the singers who are going to be delivering it every night. So of course there's pressure, but there's always pressure. I mean, that's what directors are kind of addicted to in a way. <laughs> You, you like the pressure then that's something you're quite happy uh, well, having I on your shoulders. It, I think it's fruitful you know I think I think it can be very fruitful um yeah and I'm I'm about to do another uh working on another new composition which is um going to be very interesting because we've got quite an extended research and development time on it so yeah that's that's um a piece which is a kind of contemporary well Robin Hood was also had a satirical element but this is a contemporary satire on kind of small on seaside towns in Britain as a way of looking at the kind of state of the nation so yeah that's very exciting Go, going back to, to Robin Hood I, I noticed the production's it's got an all-female creative and writing team which is um kind of a, a very pleasing site but you know obviously still a very rare site um how much throughout your career have you kind of noticed gender being a part of um of opera and you do you think that opportunities are kind of open and handed out equally i think it's really important to be aware of of these issues and i think that there's a lot of amazing work that is happening in um in the profession to raise awareness and to to kind of share opportunities more equally between the genders but i do think there's still you know if you look at the that there was quite a famous like now famous study of of conductors from a couple of years ago um conducting uk orchestras and opera companies and i mean it's it's quite strikingly scant on female conductors. Mm, i think it was five percent i think wasn't it was um, yeah 
So clearly, clearly there's a way to go there. And yeah, I mean, of course, directors as well. I think that, you know, there are more women directors, but it's, it's still a thing for people to kind of make a big deal when there's like an all female creative team. Um, and of course that wouldn't happen if it was the other way around and it would be great to get to the point where that's the case. Um, so of course, yeah, I think there's, there's still a, a lot of work to do. Certainly, you know, just as an example, when I worked at, at Welsh National Opera, I had a, like a two year, uh, job there where I was a kind of in-house assistant sponsored by the Genesis Foundation, which was totally amazing. But in that time, I never worked with a female, and this was kind of an accident because if, but I never worked with a female director. And I worked, you know, on like four shows a year. So that did strike me kind of afterwards. And I was like, oh, God, it would have been so nice to work with like, you know, Olivia Fuchs or, you know, they, they or Joe Davis or, you know, there were mm. people kind of then who were coming in to do productions. And I was like, God, I really wish I could have I could have had that experience because I do think that um, I do think it makes a difference. And I certainly actually don't think I would have ever become a director if I hadn't had formative experience seeing up close women directors and and ident kind of being able to identify that that was maybe what I thought I was yeah that, that representation sort of uh, not necessarily role models but as you say just kind of knowing that that's an option is is kind of so important for people coming coming through if if you don't see other people embodying it that you can identify with then it does become difficult so yeah I think there's a massive way to go really in all respects gender um, ethnicity class going back to your description of Robin Hood it was it was really interesting that you brought up um the the class element the the toy element the the Boris Johnson comparisons I mean it it strikes me that with your company um Loud Crowd and some of the other works you've directed kind of notably Camille uh, Tone and there's quite a strong political uh message and motivation to to some of those pieces I mean what to what extent do you think that opera can and and should be political in the way that you're uh, presenting and making work? I think that um, certainly with when you've got a show with a big chorus, there's a kind of inherent um, potential for political debate within that because the chorus, you know, and if you look at like the traditional operas, like more traditional operas, you see how a chorus really can embody the voice of a people or peoples and those big kind of clashes that are beyond personal but become these kind of forces which are oftentimes political. So if you look at Gavanshina, that's an amazing example of that. Um, there's, there's tons of things like that that you could look at. And I think with Common Latonin, I couldn't have done a version that was not political. I mean, it's inherently about politics. Um, but of course I do think, I also think that that was, the opera was the perfect art form for that piece. But of course that's the case because it was written, you know, by David for Peter Maxwell Davis to compose as an opera. Um, and of course it then has such an impact because you've got the forces, the, the, you know, the extreme operatic forces to articulate, um, these very very big epic ideas so i think in many ways opera is very well suited to expressing the epic and and yeah and the political but of course there's there's the kind of inherent potential conflict of interest between um the means that you need to put on a production um of like a professional opera production the amount it costs the amount of 
money you have to raise, etc. Again, mm. how you share that work and you know with whom, and and so so there's a very interesting kind of conundrum there, which of course is age old as well. Mm. In in terms of the the people that will be consuming the work versus uh, what the work might contain, is that what you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. The, the ring cycle is a very interesting kind of case in point because obviously I've been, I've been thinking about that quite a lot because we are beginning our, our fantastic new ring cycle at Longborough. You know, it's, it's about ultimately it's about a woman who says everything has to be destroyed and all the paternalistic structures have to go in order for life to continue. I mean, you don't, it doesn't really get more radical than that. And yet, <laughs> so I'm kind of like in this bewildered state of like, state of wonder at the truth of that and yet the way that truth in the work is encountered by a whole range of people with different political values and Mm. I suppose I see it that way um of course a great work of art can be seen in many ways but I I think it's quite unequivocal about that so anyway interesting very interesting. We'll, we'll we'll come on to um, audiences a, a little bit later. Um, before we move to the Cotswolds, um, I just want to ask you a little bit about some of the work that you've 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 done before. You've worked on a number of projects, um, obviously, kind of in some of the the main houses, but also in kind of less traditional spaces uh, with you know Robin Hood and car parks in Peckham and, and all of that sort of sort of thing. Do you, do you feel as though what you kind of gain in theatricality, what you gain in the environment of those places, kind of makes up for what you lose in in the, the the sound or the musicality or the ability to to kind of control that environment or almost should we kind of be thinking about these different kinds of ways of presenting work in in, in very different ways altogether should we not sort of try and compare these experiences i think audiences are i think there's a lot of understanding that you don't compare like for like um in some ways in terms of like something you'd see in a big house on a proscenium stage and something you'd mm. see in a different context in like a warehouse or a car park of course but i certainly for example with atlantis that we did in a bold tendencies um last mm. year which we were so delighted about i would absolutely say that we picked that piece because it fitted the space it was a response to the space and the space became the sonography and the way the artist worked with the space became part of the drama and the way the entire piece kind of unfolded was completely um woven into our response to the space and like by the end of the run of it I was so happy with it and I wouldn't have wanted it to happen I mean on a proscenium stage it would have just completely failed and so um in a way I mean of course I'm going to say this but it's one of the pieces I'm, I'm happiest with even compared to things I've done on a big proscenium stage so Sometimes I think people make understand that things are going to be different in those environments, but I absolutely don't think the standards um, should slip, and I don't think it does. In fact, I think it is requiring artists to work harder because there's nowhere to hide when you haven't got any scenery to begin with. Um, I mean, in the car park, we had a, a kind of charcoal rubber floor, but that was it. So, um, so it only really... Uh, raises the stakes in terms of what you're asking your artists to to manage and mm. uh, overcome and and then when they 
when they transcend all that and deliver an amazing performance, it's just even more gratifying and spectacular. Let's let's take ourselves to, to rural Gloucestershire then. Um, this is probably quite a, an obvious question, but what, what role did your parents and the festival play in your decision to go into a career in opera? Um, I think the festival was started in 91, I think, was it? So you'd have been um, only very young when it, when it started. How kind of formative was that experience yeah, was, growing up? Yeah, it was very formative. I mean, I um, was just absolutely addicted. You know, I just loved the whole world of the theatre that kind of sprang up around our family every summer. And that's what I fell in love with. And so that's really what... I think is the absolute seed of my uh, career. But I did spend quite a lot of time kind of, um, <clears throat> I don't know, I, I, when I was at university, I really hadn't thought, oh, definitely I'm going to do that or I'm definitely going to do that. But yeah, of course, it, it, my upbringing did play an enormous part in, in me becoming addicted to theatre. And once you sort of decided to go into a career as a, as a director in theatre and opera, was it always the plan that you'd kind of take over the reins one day was that kind of very much what what you and your your family had in mind um well we're not really that good at at planning and um (laughs) i don't think anyone plan i don't think anyone planned for it to get as far as it has to be honest and i don't think we ever really yeah of course we kind of talked about it a little bit but it wasn't like oh I'll, i'll it was definitely wasn't like oh let's like why doesn't Polly go into opera and then she can run the festival? Because I was very much... Yeah, there's, there's no grand plan. No. There was no grand plan. And and mum and dad, you know, with the greatest respect, mum and dad are like deeply amateur um, <laughs> in, their, in their knowledge of the industry. So like they, they didn't really like, they weren't really able to help me, you know, um, which is, you know, probably great. And as it should be, absolutely. I'm not like mm. regretting that, but I'm just trying to explain that, we didn't have a plan. We just had a, you know, we had a mad father who was very domineering and willful and everyone kind of, um, things kind of happened around that. And, um, obviously our, our passions kind of grew up concurrently with the environment that we were living in. So, you know, my, it's no coincidence. My sister's stand up comedian and my brother is an actor. So, you know, we all have got the bug in different ways. What are the biggest, challenges both that you anticipated and perhaps didn't anticipate of being an artistic director as opposed to to just being a director it it is actually a very different thing because you start to you know there's a lot more consideration that you give to thinking about how not just a whole season but a whole series of seasons can work and flow together and you, you shift quite quickly from being person being like why don't you give me a job why don't you give me a job to you know, starting to think, oh, this person could direct this and this person could conduct this. So it's it's quite a big change. Um, and I find it difficult in some ways because I, you know, I just love being in a rehearsal room. And I think that's really important in terms of the longer work. That's really what I bring to to the company and to the festival is that understanding of working practice as director, um, as a freelance director, you know so I don't want to I try very hard to not give that up but then that means it's also very difficult to do everything that's necessary to kind of keep the momentum of the festival and all the ideas that uh, that we want to explore as a as an organization going yeah finding the balance with all of that I'm still learning I mean you're not directing at the festival this season um is that something that might change in the future would you 
uh, yeah, kind of yeah, take might, over one of the shows? It might change in the future. And in a way, I think it's it's a, something that all our artistic directors do and it's quite good to do um, because you understand your own company from a different way and it's probably quite a healthy thing to do because you, yeah, you can see then probably what another director who you're going to ask to do another gig, what the conditions are going to be like for them and just how it works. Um, but certainly not this summer. Um, there's like just too much going on. Um, and I'm not going to ask you to pick your your, your favourite thing on the the lineup this summer because I know that uh, you're not going to do that anyway. But uh, give give us kind of a brief overview of what to what to expect from this year's festival. Well, um, I'm very excited about all of the productions in in different ways. Um, I think we've got fantastic casts across the board. Obviously, we've got um, the beginning of our new ring cycle, which is very exciting and has been um in planning for quite some time um and the cast has been and i mean the cast has been announced i think for everything now but yeah an amazing array of kind of british wagnerians and emerging wagnerians people like mark lebrock um madeline shaw just just fantastic artists so um very excited to see how how they're all going to come together and work with amy lane who's yeah, who's just been an inspiration as she's led her creative team um, with so much positivity um, into this epic adventure. Um, and of course, Anthony Negus, who again is just another level of Wagnerian, really, from from any normal human. Um, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, so that's very exciting. And then, yeah, I'm really excited about Anna Belena. Um, I think that's going to be a fantastic show. It's an amazing piece. We've got an amazing creative team on it as well. Yeah, and uh, foregrounds, you know, such a, a well-known but compelling story, and I think the psychology of of Anna and how she how she deals with the whole kind of crisis of her marriage and her her fall from favor is is amazing. And I didn't work on that show when it happened at WNO like about four years ago. That um, that opera but I really learned to fall in love with Bel Canto then um and I think it's such an amazing vehicle for you know even though it's called Bel Canto you have to be such a stunning actor to to really deliver the goods because it's it's so exposing it's, it's kind of like pop but you know with it it's I don't know it makes me think of Prince or something you just have to be an incredible <laughs> So I'm very excited about that. And yeah, then Don Giovanni will be brilliant because we have an amazing, amazingly rigorous um, director, Martin Constantine, who who always does something interesting, every show I've ever seen him do. And La Calisto, which is being directed by Matilde Lopez, who again is a brilliant, brilliant director. So obviously, you know, I'm a director. <laughs> you can tell. But it's going to be good. Yeah. <laughs> Very well sold, very good. Summer Festival Opera is such a huge part of the opera scene here in the UK and so much of our kind of overall output is, is during that season. But what is it for you about kind of that atmosphere that attracts so much affection from audiences? I think it's the festive thing. Um, I think there's also something about the kind of um, relationship between the whole experience of, of going to these kind of weird and wonderful, extraordinary places. I mean, certainly Longbridge is, I would say, weird and wonderful, and that's what, what I'm very proud <laughs> of. 
I think it's a combination of that experience and then a very, very high appreciation for the for the work itself. And that's what's just amazing about the audiences that I've met from Longbridge. They're just, you know, a lot of them are turning around to me and saying, when are you going to do Lulu? And I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. You know, like, so, <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, it, it, I think there's just this pervasive and incredibly boring media stereotype about um opera audiences being you know wanting to kind of dress up and be seen and being posh but you know really the the striking thing that i've encountered when i've met them is 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 their appetite for the work more than anything else i've i've read elsewhere um that you've spoken about your ideas to kind of bring new audiences to longbrook to kind of program projects through the festival, which can reach people outside of your kind of existing festival goers. Um, I mean, would you think something like that is kind of realistic for somewhere like Longborough to achieve? Um, or should kind of this audience engagement work be left to kind of those big, you know, publicly subsidized companies? Um, is, is kind of, you know, reaching those new audiences something that you can achieve through that kind of uh, festival environment, do you think? Well, I think the very word festival, um, to me, makes me think of lots of th- lots of different things happening in lots of different ways so i'm interested in developing that idea kind of beyond the four productions that we do um mm. and yes i do think it's i do think it's achievable the companies the, the you know the bigger companies that get a lot of public subsidy are doing great work in in that field as well but i think that everyone who's making work really you know performance is about is not just about the work you make it's about ha- how it intersects with um, a viewer, and if that viewer's only a very from a very narrow demographic, that kind of instantly becomes less in- interesting because the performance only you know the thing only happens in that live moment. It's that it's that interaction which is really what you're creating or what you're working towards the whole time. So I I see it as um, an artistic kind of um, necessity just as much as a social necessity so in an interview you you had with um days last year you said that in a traditional form opera could be so expensive it gets stuck in a traditional format with a culture of elitism um is that something you worry about with with longborough given kind of the festival model of relying on you know high demand loyal audiences and kind of relatively high pricing structure is it is it is it a worry that it can kind of get stuck in that in that format of, uh, of of elitism as you kind of mentioned yeah yeah that is a worry and i think that's why um part of what we're doing at the festival is exploring different ways that we can connect with different audiences um that don't require those price structures absolutely i think it's a fine balance between keeping keeping the audiences who who can pay for the work um on side and feeling like they're part of um of what we're doing but absolutely expanding the demographic through different projects and making sure that the quality is kind of the same standard throughout i mean is is there something that kind of has to change about how you fund or, or make the work for that to happen or do, or do you kind of see a bit of a um you know, kind of a gap that there's something that you can you can bring to the festival in that regard. I think there's loads of ways that you can, you know, it, I think it depends on also what you think opera is. You know, like one of the things I'm really that I've inherited is that 
you know, Longborough has quite a traditional model of, of what opera is. Um, mm. has a big orchestra, you know, it has a proscenium arch. It doesn't have to be any of those things. It doesn't have, opera doesn't have to have a forbid, have a big orchestra. It doesn't even have to have an orchestra. Um, so I think that, you know, I don't want to frighten the horses, but <laughs> I do keep that in mind. And certainly in other areas of my work, I, I think it's interesting to interrogate that. And, and actually, um, when we announce our 2020 season, you know, we're, we're working with, with different orchestrations of things. And, um, that's very important to keep kind of keep alive and keep in mind when you're programming. So do you see kind of your work with Longborough and your work elsewhere as not necessarily very different, but you kind of put them into sort of different boxes of your career almost that, you know, your work with Longborough kind of serves a particular purpose and you work with another company kind of does different things. Do you kind of see them as almost, you know, kind of different facets of what you do? Yeah, I do in a way, although I think that the the kind of, artistic standard has to be you have that inside you and you bring that to whatever environment you're working in of course Longbra has a completely different context and set of expectations around it I'm quite heartened that my my parents have already taken audiences on on quite a journey um I think there's a there's a much much more extensive and exciting journey that we can go on and you know with with the focus on Wagner at our festival that kind of underscores the spirit of adventure and artistic exploration we should have because he was such an innovator yeah that's what I want to continue really that's really interesting and I think it answers my my next question which is you know you've also got a very loyal audience at Longburn kind of what is the balance do you think being an artistic director of of taking the audience on the journey you want them to go on and the balance with kind of programming what those audiences seem to to like and want to return for you know is it is it a bit of a 50 50 is a bit of kind of give and take in that relationship do you think yeah i think it's, there's give and take but I, I i just think it's not sensible to assume that audiences aren't adventurous because hmm. they've come that far and they've made a big commitment and actually i think i think they have appetite for new things and yeah certainly um Anna Belena, which we might have thought, oh, not necessarily the most um, standard repertoire. I mean, that would never have been something that my parents programmed even 10 years ago. It has been very well received so far and is, is yeah, we're excited about how, how the ticket sales are going for that. So it's a, it's a long game and it's a slow game. Opera is an art form that takes a long time to plan. But, um, mm. you know, I absolutely have to... Ho- take all of your prompts about artistic innovation and um, thinking about taking people somewhere new and remember that that is I'm kind of there to do. Do, do, you, th- do you think that you mentioned kind of the, the long planning cycle of opera? Do, do you think that limits some of that kind of political um, impact it can have because it takes such a long time to get works new or all to the stage? Yeah, um, but I think that's it's partly about having the 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 right people thinking in the right ways about how they want to present those works. Because of course, if you want to make a kind of gesture to like a scandal that's happened within like a three month 
kind of news cycle, you're probably going to fail because that will have become old news by the time you get to delivering the show. But, you know, if you take something like Comilitonin, um, that just had so much resonance when we presented that in 2016 with over 100 young people just after the EU referendum. And mm. no one could have anticipated that. But the work is so great and so radical contains so many um kind of interesting insights into history that you know the the kind of cyclical pattern of of history was was relived as we kind of all sat there and like you know there were probably like 25 different nationalities in the in the rehearsals and you know all kind of talking it over and talking about how that made us feel about what we were performing and you know it was amazing so i think it's i think it's just about how how you're making those comments and and whether you whether you're considering a general trend or way society's going over a slightly longer period rather than a kind of gimmick response five years time once you've kind of had chance to really be embedded in that planning cycle of, of long but what do you want people to think about when they think of the festival what's kind of the the main thing you'd like people to have in mind when they think of Longborough? I, I'd like them to think of it as a place of, of artistic adventure and very high standards. And I'd like them to think of it as a very welcoming atmosphere, a place that was created by, a, a, you know, an outsider, someone who didn't have much of an education and didn't have any access really to culture. and for people to feel like that can be for them as well, irrespective of their own background. Final question. You've achieved quite a lot in your relatively short career to date, but is there kind of one project at the moment you haven't had the chance to do that you'd really like to do? What's that kind of one, you know, pet work or project that you'd you'd really like to get your teeth into? Well, probably Pelias and Melisande. That's the thing that I that I'm addicted to and I come back to again and again and I'm fascinated by more than anything else and obviously it's very post-Wagnerian and would never have happened if Debussy hadn't kind of wanted to subvert I suppose the the, the way Wagner created things but yeah um Pelias and I would also say Tristan because um I had the most amazing experience working on Frank Martin's um version of the Tristan legend and it's just an amazing, amazing um, piece, but it really gave me a, a feeling of wanting to get my teeth into it again, but from Wagner's perspective. So I'd say Penny Ass and Tristan are two two of the ones that I really want to do. But, you know, I'll, I'll direct anything. <laughs> uh, Polly Graham, thank you very much. Thank you so much, David. It's lovely to talk to you. Tickets are available now for Longborough's new season, but move quickly. Full details of the season are available from lfo.org.uk. Now, John, you're both um, the artistic director of Charles Court Opera and a director for hire, as well as a singer. You're just a kind of a 21st century, you know, kind of modern man, really. Yeah, Renaissance man. Renaissance man, yeah. absolutely, uh, you know. Um, What's a sculpture like? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Decent David, would you? <laughs> What, what what kind of the the, the joys and challenges of, of kind of being an artistic director as opposed to kind of being a director for you? Well, I think that it, it's the, the ability to be able to really shape 
at what you want to present to uh, an audience. And uh, and there's also something very rewarding about um, being able to uh, gift people um, employment and give them opportunities to do things and to work with people that you're excited to work with you know you that's really within your within your grasp to do that um, it's challenging because you know inevitably there's administration that comes with a job like that and while I have assistance for that you know it, it's it's a balancing act getting that to run alongside a, a freelance life which for many people is you know more than enough in terms of being busy mm. um, I mean I, I'll say it's been a happy accident really it wasn't always my intention that it would continue to exist for as long as it has but you know as I was saying to a friend the other day uh, when we're working on the on shows with Charles Scott Opera I often find that it, it feels like a bit of a happy place you know it's it's a it's a really feels like a very creative and free environment in which you know uh, I'm I'm the boss I answer to myself you know it's uh, it's um, it's a very uh, exciting um, uh, period of time when we're rehearsing and putting a new show together um, and I really enjoy working with through the, the business of, of actually uh, uh, getting something to actually exist in a way that's not just a, a creative thought you know mm. actually following it through um, and uh, it's uh, it's something that I'm enjoying exploring more and, and hope will will be part of my life for years to come still there's a new production coming up at the royal opera house uh, opening over the next couple of weeks which is the force of destiny with the all-star cast of natrebko and kaufman in the leading roles um, you might have seen recently that tickets for this sold out production uh, were selling on the site of viagogo for up to three and a half thousand pounds a ticket <laughs> Very steep prices indeed. Um, now, the Royal Opera House uh, protests their resale. They released a statement to say that they don't allow tickets to be resold and people that buy them may be turned away at the door. Um, however, this kind of opened up a bit of a different debate, which is about how many tickets for that production were actually available for the public to buy. Um, only around 100 seats per performance were available um, after you know friends and members had kind of bought their tickets, plus 70 seats for the Friday rush. Um, so, you know, kind of... Big international stars coming to the Royal Opera House and um, very difficult for the public to go and see them. This despite the fact that the Royal Opera House is the um, largest, uh, receives the largest public subsidy of all the arts organisations in the country. They reacted to this by putting out a statement um, which included the fact that 62% of all their tickets are available for the public to buy, um, which to me still doesn't sound like, like very much. Um, I kind of start by saying that, you know, I've worked in, in fundraising for the arts for many years. You know, I understand the importance of, of membership schemes. Um, you know, they're a vital kind of income generating resource for companies. And, the you know, you kind of have to treat members well. You have to kind of give them access. But for me, it's about that balance, about how much is available for the public, how much is available for those people. Um, so kind of starting with, with, with you, Ben, um, is the job of the Royal Opera House to bring in the world's best talent for us to see? Or is it to kind of produce that? multiplicity of experiences that serve different audiences. My honest opinion is that I'm happy with them bringing in the world-class talent and creating the best operatic experience and selling it to their rich members to their hearts content. I don't think they should get a penny of public money, if I'm being honest. Um, the, the Metropolitan, from what I can work in New York, there's this, concept, there's this culture of private patronage. And there is some exceptionally wealthy people who are in a place where they could, and I suspect would support the Royal Opera, but there's, there's no necessity to because public funding is going to the, the gold standard of opera in this country. We're going we're gonna to keep this thing here. But it is an elitist organisation. And to claim it isn't, when their cheapest tickets are 70, 80 quid, that's, we're not talking about three and a half thousand quid ticket. We're talking about the bottom level ticket being 70, 80 quid. 
for restricted viewing back row at gallery. It's not. I'm perfectly happy. I want a gold standard of opera in this company, in this country. Sorry, but that it is funded by the public body, funded by people buying lottery tickets while they pick up the cigarettes, is a is a nonsense. What about that that wider remit they have? Because obviously the Royal Opera House, yes, you know, a big part of what they do is putting those productions on stage, yeah. getting that talent in. But there's all of the kind of the rest of the work that they do around. You know, we've talked about the cinema screenings, we've talked about the education work, we've talked about the building kind of being opened up, the stuff they're programming, the the Linbury. Are we kind of talking about trying to see that side of the work as different to the main stage work? Well, I think it is. I, I, I see very very little join up between that. Between Putting Kaufman in a teller is all great. From there, oh yeah, and we sent somebody into some schools in London last week. There's very, very little joined up in my experience. I've not worked for them. I'm, I'm not. I'm not there. But I think there's other organisations on the ground in these areas with a real passionate commitment to music education, who I suspect could make that money go further. It's interesting, though. I mean, you say about the education, but the I know that the you know the Opera House have quite a wide range of of education projects that are, that are, are, are aimed at varying different age groups as well i, I just have written a, a piece for the they have something called the opera dots which is like for not to five year olds and, and yeah and it's and it's and it's great because they they're introducing them to the concept of what of what that might be like from the ground up which i mean th- thank god something like that exists because if, if it can become part of the norm rather than kind of an alien experience then you know there's a fighting chance of it surviving great but does that need to be at Royal Opera doing it? Are there other organisations that would make that money go further? Ah, without, gosh. Without propping up that structure. Well, I suppose the argument for the public subsidy is that you do invest it into a big organisation so they then have that sort of core administrative power to be able to kind of go off and do all sorts of different activities. Yeah. That in a way, kind of splitting it up actually is... is um, you kind of kind of lose the point because you're putting lots of different bits into different organisations rather than just kind of giving the big beast all of those resources to kind of try and yeah. amplify its, right. its, its reach. I, I do do education, but how much of it is to the side of Watford Gap? Not a lot, is it? It's all it's all based down there. Yeah, I mean, there's another question yeah. there about the national remit really of, of a national is company. It, is the Royal Opera the national And is, is cinema screenings you know, enough? I mean, we spoke about you know the Kaufman and Trebko is on a cinema screen. You know, for me, that's that's lovely, but really, you want to get you want to get the public to kind of be in that audience with yeah, them. Yeah. But then, yeah. I mean, I mean, you're just saying about, you know, the, the, how far how far and wide the, the, you know, the education might might reach. Certainly, I know I know from experience that Opera North's own education department reaches as far as it possibly can across the top of the, you know, this their, their region. Very, very, yeah. uh, and, you know, and, you know, going up to, you know, into, into all sorts of... Um, uh, really small towns and village halls and 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 schools and community centres and so on and actually you know that I know that they're working very very hard to make sure that the the subsidy that they get for that particular strand of their work is is spread and used as well as it possibly can be uh, and I suppose there's a li- there's a, a small element of you know, for the customer that they know that they're going to uh, probably experience something that they like the sound of because it's been brought to them by a national company. Maybe that's part of it. And they have, and you say about administrative support, I think that there's something uh, really in that because it, it's allowing the work that's being made to be um, a, of, of a, as high a standard of quality as it possibly can be because they have that level of support mm-hmm. and they can provide the rehearsal space and so on. So I think that there are real pros and cons to all of that. Yeah, and I think for, for, for me, I think there is there is a a role to play for kind of having a couple of organisations that receive a lot of subsidy to create the very best work. Something I always remember is the first time I went to the Royal Opera House was to see Ariadne Alphanaxos a few years ago. And I don't know if you've seen their production, but it starts with sort of the, the foyer of this very grand 
house. Um, that is then hydraulically raised to reveal the below stairs as the kind of the preparations of the play are going on. You don't see that first set ever again. It's on for about three minutes. Yeah. I don't know the hundreds of thousands of pounds that went into that, but yeah. as a theatrical effect, it was brilliant. And some of me says, you know what? Bloody hell! If they're gonna, if they're just gonna produce the top level stuff, they want to do what they want. You yeah. know, just allow that to happen. I'm all for it. It's great. I just don't think we should pay for it. Well, the, the, the vast majority of people chipping in to that pot that they take the money are never gonna go and don't like it. But they're paying for it. Mm. And there's some very wealthy people there who could pay for it, and they're not doing. Mm. I mean, it's, I think going back to your earlier point about the Metropolitan Opera and the Royal Opera House, there's also yeah. a very different culture of yeah. philanthropy in the US. Yeah. And, you know, in a way, we are conditioned here because of the large public subsidies that we've had for many years, which are declining, but still kind of yeah. there, that it's always going to be a bit of the mix. I do wonder if we're in the middle ground, because in Europe, it's just in your taxes. Yeah. And then it's all... Yeah. So in America, it's private patronage. And we're in some middle ground. That we're perhaps... between Europe and America. Who, yeah. who knew? I know where I want to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'd be really interested to, to hear your thoughts, um, listeners, on this. Um, so do get in touch. We're info at operacast.co.uk or find us Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Now, a quick note just to uh, catch you up on a couple of performances coming up from Welsh National Opera this summer, which we didn't discuss last month. I've got a whole series of semi-staged operas. Um, the one I'd particularly like to, to point out is Monotti's The Consul, which is coming on the 12th of June. Um, a really wonderful um, Monotti opera, which has done quite a lot in um, mainland Europe, but hardly ever seen here in the UK. So do um, head along to that if you can. Um, also, as part of that series, they've got Jake Heggie's Dead Man Walking, um, another very popular piece in the US which is coming over here to the UK. Last month uh, we also mentioned their War and Peace which uh, personally I vouch as being a really terrific production and um, that's coming back for a couple of performances at the Royal Opera House this July so if you didn't see it the first time around head over to the Royal Opera House website um, and do check out Welsh uh, National Opera's War and Peace uh, coming there in July. Now, I don't know if you've seen this, John, but Kathleen Turner, the doyen of stage and screen, um, has had some things to say about the opera world. She is uh, currently on stage in the Metropolitan Opera's La Fille du Régiment. She's had a few interesting things to say about uh, what she calls opera acting or so-called acting. Um, speaking to The Observer, not the uh, British newspaper, but the American publication, she says, I think I'm more of an opera fan now because I understand it better. The parameters under which the actors are so-called acting but at the same time, it's still bad acting. It's all over the top, it's all huge, it's against my 41 years of trained instinct, but I'm having a ball. John, do you, did you know that you were such a bad actor? Is this, <laughs> is this news to you, or were you always aware of this from an early age? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's tricky, isn't it? Because I understand what she's... I do actually sort of understand what she's saying, but perhaps she's just putting it in a slightly flippant way. <laughs> um, but, I mean, it is different. It, it, there are, clearly there are differences because the music dictates to uh, mostly that, it's, uh, that it's, it is... Um, it needs to be larger than life in some way, yeah. and and often you're saying a sentence that uh, that you might be able to say uh, as an actor, you might be able to say it, you know either within a few seconds or take advantage of silence or you know what whatever other things are at your disposal. But then you might be in the middle of something where you're saying, "I'm dying," but the music is telling you that it needs to be 
felt very, very, very strongly <laughs> and very uh, enormously. So, you know, it's difficult to say. It, 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 it's it's important to say that it is clearly uh, there is a, clearly a, a style. There is a different style, and and also the audience's involvement. I find is very important to its success. I mean, I, I don't mean that everything should be played to the audience because it, it shouldn't, but, but there is an element of the audience being a part of that experience as well. You know, there is, there is a real connection there. Um, and, and so it does feel different. Um, I think that the main thing to say, though, is that opera acting can be bad if it's not uh, sincerely felt, if it's not honest. You can be as over the top as you like. Someone once said said this to me. It's, you can be as over the top as you like, as long as it is honest and as long as it mm. is uh, earnestly felt. Um, earnest is perhaps not the right word because it shouldn't always be earnest. Clearly, but um, uh, it it needs to be believed from within you. So then, whatever whatever comes from that uh, is going to be believable. Yeah, and you, and, you take the audience with you if they're. You know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you know, it, there's no pretending that it uh, should be comparable to uh, uh, film or, or, or TV acting. Or, or, but it, but there are similarities to it with straight theatre because you know it, it also does have to reach the back of an auditorium. You know, not and I don't mean vocally. I mean, uh, I mean obviously that's the case. But I also mean in terms of you know your performance has to radiate to the back mm. row and, and that comes uh, with an, a need for it to have high energy or uh, a, a lot of a lot of that kind of um, commitment so yeah I, I get I get her point to a degree I think maybe she's just being a little bit tongue-in-cheek <laughs> and I, I don't know if this is the case for you as well but sometimes I feel as though some of these more intimate opera productions don't always work because there is something inherently big and dramatic about you know, a kind of an opera score, an orchestra that you know it, it wouldn't seem right if you sort of downplayed the the performative side of things because everything else is so heightened, is carrying you along that actually you do, as you said, kind of need a different style of performing it, which suits the the surroundings, the you know the kind of the the musical landscape that you're kind of in. Uh, yes, but I, I I wouldn't say that it's worse I, uh, or, or or worse off. I'd say that it's just no, it's, it's, it's just different, different. and actually. I, I, you know, I, I, I'll link my words a little bit and say that, you know, while, while I say that it should be over the top, uh, when you, in, uh, it, over the top is not the right thing, larger than life perhaps, but also actually a lot of the time you can find, I found personally, that you can find a great economy in your performance sometimes when the music is actually uh, underpinning what the emotion of that moment is. It's like with film, we, we've been brought up on this now. You know, we know that we know that you could film somebody walking down a corridor, um, but uh, you only know whether that's going to be an, uh, an amusing or scary or dangerous experience, often because of the underscores that's coming with mm -hmm. you. So there is something to be gained from letting that, uh, the music actually help play the subtext of, of the situation for you. I, I find, and in and in especially in small in smaller scale productions, in, in, I noticed from working on them myself that you know the music ha can have a big uh, effect on that. And there there is something there is something that you get that's that's different, which is that there's an intimacy and there's a uh, an immediacy of the of the performer singing right in front of you, which is another whole other sensory experience, which is elementary and very exciting. So you're still getting uh, a lot of impact. It's just a different part of the impact, mm. I think. Mm. Yeah, and especially when you're in a, a stage like the Metropolitan Opera, there are not many um, theatres where you have to play to kind of quite that size of auditorium. There's kind of a 
kind of a, a, a just a kind of a size and staging kind of logistical element to this as well. If you're the person that's sitting at the back of the the gods, uh, you you got you got to be able to see and interact with what's going on stage. Yeah. Um, and I think you know sometimes we can kind of forget that you know directors sometimes play things to the middle of the dress circle, but it's a big auditorium out there. Quite. Now, also in that production, Javier Camarena, one of the world's leading bel canto tenors, is playing the the leading role. Um, in every performance, um, he has encored um, the standard Ah Miami uh, song, which uh, uh, very famously has its nine high Cs. Um, this included on the recent Mets uh, live broadcast. Now, I don't know what you think, John. Uh, encores, I can kind of kind of see the point in them. I don't know if they seem a little indulgent perhaps you never get that as a bass do you uh, no no, no one's ever kind of encoring your, your nice sarastro you know you're not uh, no i suppose not but i mean i, I think that probably people have you know been encored for, for for that you know very very famous people especially in somewhere like italy where it's very much more a culture i mean i think it's just a cultural thing and it's clearly been a part of culture for 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 a long time for a lot of people um and i think you know a lot of people really do feel that 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 encores are, are a problem and i mean in this country it just doesn't happen because no. we, we're, we're in a different we're place preserved and british people that you know yeah and we're, but we're, <laughs> we're in a completely different place now about how we feel about that sort of thing but in, i know in, you know in germany for example it's it's much more common and i went to a concert where at the end of the concert the concert actually went on for about another hour because several <laughs> things were being encored and that was absolutely fine but um and, and everyone was was absolutely thoroughly enjoying hearing it and i think you know the culture comes from uh the the, the tradition of it comes from the fact that it was the only place that you were going to get to hear that music you won't be able to go home and pop on the cd mm, or whatever that's interesting. so you you it was probably a chance to hear it again to uh, induce some familiarity in the listener so that then uh, they can feel that they they know it better for when they go to see it again, which inevitably they will. So I, I understand it. And there's also something about um, that the kind of, you know, as we talked about before, there's the atmosphere of the audience's, uh, and the atmosphere in the theatre and the audience's involvement in, in the piece can sometimes be really electrifying. And, in, you know, in Italy, I know that they're very vocal about whether they think that something's not good enough or if, mm. they, or if they love something and they want to hear it encored again and again and again. And there's something kind of magical and unique about that in the, in the opera industry. Now, of course, you know, as a director and uh, as a singer, you know, there are elements of of caution, I think, with it, because, you know, you're, you're fiddling with the uh, the narrative um, and the dr- dramatic thread. You're perhaps breaking the illusion yeah, of was... the fact that it's a, it's a piece of reality that we're trying to play out. Um, uh, so it's clearly to taste. Uh, but I personally, you know, would love to sit in a theatre and experience that because there's something about the kind of virtual nature of of the act of singing opera, which is incre- incredibly athletic. Mm. And if it's done well, it's beyond exciting. Yeah. And, you know, if the audience is screaming to hear that again, then it's maybe worth it. Hello listener, this is David here. Now due to some recording difficulties at Chapel FM, we sadly had to miss out our hidden gem for this month, but it's a good one, so I wanted to bring it to you nonetheless. In memory of Andre Previn, who sadly passed away earlier this month, we've selected his 1997 opera, A Streetcar Named Desire. Seldom seen over this side of the pond, it's a cracking work written so well for the voice, and it captures the essence of the drama and heat of Tennessee Williams' original play perfectly. 
There's an original cast recording you can listen to online, and here's the original Blanche Dubois, Rene Fleming with I Want Magic, which you may recall Louise Alder performed so memorably during the final of the 2017 Cardiff Singer of the World competition. And to finish with our traditional opera quiz where we pit Ben and John against each other, I name a composer, they name operas. First person who cannot name an opera by that composer um, does not win. Please, this month, we're going to start with John. And John, can you name me a opera by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart? Uh, Le Nozze di Figaro. Don Giovanni. Così van tutte. Can I have Die Zauberflöte? It's not actually an opera, but can we have the magic Oh, yes, you can right, have that. Right. That's fine. Uh, Seraglio. La Finita Gardiner. Lovely. Um, 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 am I right that... Yeah, yeah, Sebastian, um, Bastian and, and... Bastian and Bastian. Bastian. Yes, that's right. La Clemenza di Tito. Uh, have we said Don Giovanni yet? Yeah, I've said that. Yeah, bugger. Uh, uh, I think uh, early Mozart, think Roman. Yeah. Oh. What? No clues, Dave. I don't know if that was the best clue I've ever given. Oh, I think I'm running out of steam. I think this is going to be Ben. In Domineo. In Domineo, there's one. Actually, I was thinking there's of Lu- Lu- Lucia, Lucia Sia. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, yes, yeah. yes. But there are, there are a number of all sorts of weird and wonderful ones. I think we probably hit most of the, the main ones on their, on their head. Um, the one I came across recently, which actually is a, a, a pasticcio with a number of composers, is the Philosopher's Stone. Stone. Oh, yeah, not, right. Which which I'm seeing box office bells are ringing, yeah, yeah, yeah. the Philosopher's Stone opera. Yeah. Um, but very if well... you want to see a lot of disappointed children, ap- you ap- put that on as an opera. You know, that there's, yeah. there's a certain... Yeah, a certain, yeah. Uh, yeah there, weren't, there won't have been any copyright issues no, for J.K. No, Rowling, no, will there? No. no. Yeah. No, I don't. I don't think yeah. there's anyone called Harry Potter in that one, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, we hit the main ones on the head. Yeah, there's some of the early um, obscure ones which we which we didn't so much. Um, Mitridate occasionally uh, yeah. gets done. Yeah, King of Crete, one. Um, La Finta Semplice yes. is, oh, yeah. is done occasionally. Um, Apollo as well. Um, but there's a few sort of weird and wonderful ones. But uh, w- well played, both of you. It's not easy being put on the spot. Um, but congratulations, Ben. Hey. 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 Thank you very much. So thank you very much to John and Ben for joining me uh, this month. Ben, you've got a very important engagement to go off to this yes, afternoon. Yes, I'm um, playing the piano for my son's entry in the Skipton Music Festival. Well, my, my career has peaked. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, all the best to you thank and to him, much. but probably more much. so to you, yeah, I dare say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and John, thank you for joining us. I hope the rest of the Upper North Tour goes well. Thanks very much. And we'll next see you on our stages at Holland Park, is that correct? Yes, that's right, Ballon and Mascara. Ballon and Mascara. Wonderful. Great. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, John. And as ever, thank you to Chapel FM. We'll see you next month.